Good morning again. If you could turn with me in your Bibles to Matthew chapter 19, our sermon text for this morning comes from Matthew 19, verses 13 through 30. If you don't have a Bible, there are plenty of Bibles on the back table. And uh, if you don't own a Bible, you should feel free to take one of those, write your name in it, keep it, and uh, bring it back week after week as we study God's Word together. Before we read God's Word, let's pray together again. Let's pray. Our Father, we, we need you. We need you right now. Not just every hour in some generic way. Uh, that's not what the song means. But we, but we need you right now. We need you at this moment. And we pray that you would come and be with us. We pray that you would fill us with your spirit, that you would soften our hearts to your word, and that you would uh, enable us to understand and to be changed as we behold Jesus in the scriptures. Be glorified, Father, in this moment, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Matthew 19, beginning with verse 13. Then children were brought to him that he might lay his hands on them and pray. The disciples rebuked the people, but Jesus said, Let the little children come to me, and do not hinder them, for to such belongs the kingdom of heaven. And he laid his hands on them and went away. And behold, a man came up to him saying, Teacher, what good deed must I do to have eternal life? And he said to him, Why do you ask me about what is good? There's only one who is good. If you would enter life, keep the commandments. He said to him, which ones? And Jesus said, you shall not murder, you shall not commit adultery, you shall not steal, you shall not bear false witness, honor your father and mother, and you shall love your neighbor as yourself. The young man said to him, all these I have kept, what do I still lack? Jesus said to him, If you would be perfect, go sell what you possess and give to the poor, and you will have treasure in heaven, and come, follow me. When the young man heard this, he went away sorrowful, for he had great possessions. And Jesus said to his disciples, Truly I say to you, only with difficulty will a rich person enter the kingdom of heaven. And I tell you, it is easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle than for a rich person to enter the kingdom of heaven. When the disciples heard this, they were greatly astonished, saying, Who then can be saved? But Jesus looked at them and said, With man, this is impossible. But with God, all things are possible. Then Peter said in reply, See, we have left everything and followed you. What then will we have? Jesus said to him, Truly I say to you, in the new world, when the Son of Man will sit on his glorious throne, you who have followed me will also sit on twelve thrones, judging the twelve tribes of Israel. And everyone who has left houses or brothers or sisters or father or mother or children or lands for my name's sake will receive a hundredfold and will inherit eternal life. But many who are first will be last, and the last first. Well, we often find ourselves in a place where there is some kind of lack, some emptiness, something missing. 
And our natural tendency, whatever that emptiness might be, our, our, our natural ten- tendency is to try to fill the space. Our natural tendency is to sort of populate that vacancy, whatever it is. We do that with time, of course. You know, particularly, in, maybe particularly in our culture. It's the only culture I really know, but it seems, particularly in our culture, we are uncomfortable with, with free time. If we have an opening, we have to fill it with something. Our schedule must be full all the time. You know, every morning in the summer, the first thing that my boys have asked is, what are we going to do today? Right? They want to know. Right? They, they, they can't have any dead time. Right? It's got to be something that we're going to do. And there's almost this anxiety that we have that we, we've got to be doing something at every moment. The same is true with silence. You know what we call silence in our culture, right? Awkward. Awkward silence. I know we don't call all silence awkward, but we're often uncomfortable, right, with dead air. And so we fill the silence with with music, with headphones, with the radio, or with idle chatter. We're uncomfortable with even physical emptiness. I mean, think about this. How many of us keep an empty room in our house, you know, just to have some space? No, we, we fill our rooms, right? We fill our houses with, with stuff, our basements with even more stuff. Now, now, there's nothing wrong, right, with doing things, with listening to music, with having stuff. That's not what I'm saying. Just pointing out our tendency is to fill emptiness, right, wherever we find it. And you know, not everyone notices it. And sometimes we're too busy filling it to notice. But there is a, a space in life, an emptiness, a lack. And the rich young man who comes to Jesus, he, he recognizes that something is missing. He's a good person, he thinks, but he lacks something. Well, this morning we're going to look at three things. You can find the outline in your bulletin on the back. We're going to look at recognizing that lack, filling the space, and emptying self. And we'll actually talk about a fourth thing, which is receiving the reward, recognizing the lack, filling the space, emptying self, and receiving a reward. First, recognizing the lack. This, this man comes to Jesus and he asks a question. He says, what good deed must I do to have eternal life? Now, eternal life, we should say right from the start, uh, doesn't simply mean life that goes on forever. We hear the word eternal, and of course we think time, which makes sense. But that's not simply what it means in the Bible. It, it's, it's abundant life. It's life to its fullest, as Jesus says in John 10. And so the rich young man comes to Jesus to ask, what do I have to do to have life to its fullest? What do I have to do to have eternal life? And the question is important, of course, because the question uh, means that, that this man realizes something is missing in his life. Later, when Jesus lists the commandments, the rich young man says uh, there in verse 20, he said, all these have I kept. What do I still lack? See, he, he realizes there's something missing. Something that should be there isn't. And I, I think in some ways we're to take the man's words there at face value, at least outwardly in a general way. This is a moral, wealthy person, and yet he recognizes that something is, is wrong, something's missing. And that's important because often we look, at, we look at the people around us and we think, oh, that person, they need a little religion, right? 
or this person over here, they, they need a little God in their lives. And uh, who do we look at and say those kinds of things? Well, the people whose lives are a visible mess, right? It's, it's those who are trapped in some visible, obvious outward sin or who are, who are, who are um, whose moral or relational or economic situation often is less than ideal. But that's not this man. Right? This man is moral. This man is wealthy. He has everything we think someone would need. And it's him who asks the question, what do I still lack? And he asks the question because, again, he knows something is missing. And we should commend the rich young man for this, especially young people, I think, right? We, if, if you have everything, we tend to focus on the moment. We tend to ignore the big picture. This man is thoughtful. He recognizes this emptiness. And this lack, this emptiness, this space has been around since close to the beginning. You know, early on, Adam and Eve dwelt in the garden with God. God had made good people and he had made a beautiful world to enjoy intimate fellowship with those good people. But humanity rejected God's rule of the world and, and were punished by being removed from the garden. And there then follows kind of a double lack, right? On the one hand, humanity, who was created upright and good and righteous, we now lack that original goodness. We come into the world and our hearts are already stained with sin. We have a sense, every one of us, that something is not right in my heart. I shouldn't have the thoughts that I have or I shouldn't have the desires that I have. The best quote that I've seen, someone sent me from the internet, yes, but it, was, it goes like this. Someone somewhere said, I'm not evil. An evil person would do the things that pop into my head. See, we know there's something wrong with us. We know that we lack goodness that we, we feel like we should have. But there's another lack as well from the beginning, a lack of communion with God. God who is the source of true life. Fellowship with God, which is life to its fullest. And the moment God sent Adam and Eve out of the garden, that, that picture of the brokenness that, that, that is a picture of the brokenness of our relationship with God due to sin. We are separated from Him because of our sin. We lack that intimate fellowship that we once enjoyed in the garden. And so when people sense that there is something missing in life, it, it, it's these two things, right? It's this. There's something missing in me. There's something not right with me. Something isn't the way it should be. And there's something missing in my life. Something that I, I feel intuitively should be there that isn't. Well, how about you? Do you feel like something is missing in life? Do you ever feel like something, there's something more that you should be doing, that there's something wrong with you? Do you ever feel the lack? Well, in some ways, I hope you do. I, I, that sounds strange, I know, but, but it, because to admit that lack, to admit that space is really just to be honest with ourselves. And that's a good thing. It's good to be honest with ourselves. It's good to say, man, something's just not right in my life, in my heart. And if you have that sense that something is missing, that something's not right, the next question that we tend to ask is, what am I going to do about it? 
What am I going to do with this emptiness, with this space? And that brings us to the next point, right? Filling the space. Notice again the rich young man's question. He's not asking about the lack itself so much, but about what good deed he can do to make up for that lack, to fill that space, to populate the emptiness, right? To give himself life. What good deed must I do to have eternal life, he says. This young man thinks that there's something he can do to fill the void in his world. And he really looks to three things. He looks to morality, he looks to religious experience, and he looks to riches. First, he he looks to morality. I mean, this man's question is pretty straightforward, right? He says, teacher, what good deed must I do to have eternal life? He's looking for a good deed, a good deed to earn himself the good life. And he has a partial view of, of rewards and punishments. I mean, the Bible does say that God punishes the wicked and rewards the righteous. And this man is going off that. He's saying, okay, well, what good deed must I do? It's an interesting question. It's interesting for one thing because he says, what good deed, not deeds. He he has this general idea that God punishes the wicked, rewards the righteous, and he's looking for the one thing that he needs to do, just one. What's that one thing? Then when Jesus says, if you would enter life, keep the commandments, plural, he responds, which ones? Narrow it down for me, Jesus, right? What is it that I have to do? Let's get specific, Jesus. Now, Jesus says later on in this story, he says, only with difficulty will a rich person enter the kingdom. And I want to jump there for just a second because it's relevant to to this right here, to this man's question. See, if if we understand, um, if we want to understand what's going on here, we need to understand why it's so difficult, for a rich man to enter the kingdom. Well, why is it difficult? The, the traditional answer, right, which is maybe two-thirds of the answer, is if you have a lot of money, you will love money. And no one can serve two masters. Jesus taught that back in, in Matthew 6. And he specifically adds no one can serve God and money. And so if you have money, you will likely love money. If you love money, you're putting it before God. Who is the one who you should love with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength? And so we, when we have lots of money, the, the tendency is to let that take the place of God. Now, as I said, that's only two-thirds of the answer. Uh, there's another part that's worth considering. People who have money also tend to have a certain confidence. It's possible that, you know, if you have a lot of money, that maybe you earned it, right? Maybe you worked hard to, to make your millions. You have a certain sense of your own ability, or even if you didn't earn it, Maybe, maybe it was handed to you. You know that money can get you places in life. Most things are for sale. So money has this tendency to give us a confidence. If, if something needs to be done, I can do it, right? How much does it cost? Just tell me who to pay. I'm there. And so then consider this rich man in this light. He comes to Jesus and says, what good deed must I do? Jesus says, keep the commandments. He responds, which ones? Right, what, what's he doing? He's bargaining, right? He's, he's haggling over the price of heaven, right? He's saying, oh, all right, what do I have to do? What good deed? Okay, many deeds, all right. Which ones, right? He's, he's trying to get the right price. I don't want to push this too far, but it's clear that this man thinks that he has what it takes to get things done. Whatever good deeds 
need to be done to fill the void in his life. He can do it. He just needs Jesus to point him in the right direction and say, go. Well, what do you think? I mean, do do you ever look to morality to make you happy, to fill your emptiness? Do you ever think that God owes you because you've been a pretty good person after all? I mean, certainly better than the guy next door. I mean, you don't steal, you don't lie, you don't murder, you don't commit adultery. God must owe you something for all that, right? I mean, he promises to reward the righteous, so, all right, Jesus. So the young man looks to his own morality to fill this void in his soul. But you could also say that he's, he's looking to religious experience. I mean, when Jesus lists the commandments that need to be done, uh, this rich person responds like this in verse 20. He says, all these I have kept. What do I still lack? Now, what does he mean there? What's he saying? Well, well he means that there must be something more than this, right? He, he must have been a, a bit disappointed with Jesus' answer. He's asking, what is the one thing that sort of the quintessential act of religious devotion that will top off my life and gain me heaven? And Jesus tells him to love his neighbor. Don't murder. Don't commit adultery. Don't steal. Don't spread lies about people. Honor your father and mother. It's a little anticlimactic. I mean, all these I have kept, he says. What do I still lack? What more is there? Eternal life, he thinks, can't be found in the mundane. It must be something amazing. He's looking for something spectacular that he can do for God, something beyond the ordinary. He's done all that. Okay, what's next? And we often fall into this trap, right? That, that life, that real life is not found in the mundane or the routine or the everyday, but that life is found in something spectacular, we think. Something out of the ordinary and some great experience in the Christian life, we think, is not found in simple acts of love, but somewhere on a mountaintop or in some radical act that, that, that makes the world turn its head. And so we run from experience to experience trying to find something to fill the void. But after every experience, we're still left empty. We're still left wanting, wishing for, wishing for something to fill the empty spaces of our lives. And so we ask with this man, well, what do I still lack? What else is there? What's the next thing? Well, in the end, Jesus did give him something spectacular that he can do. He tells him to go sell everything, give to the poor, and then come and follow Jesus. But he goes away sad. He goes away sad because morality and religious experience are not the only thing that this man is looking to, to fill his life, to find the good life. He's also looking to money. Now, the the text says specifically in verse 22, when the young man heard this, he went away sorrowful, for he had great possessions. He loved his money. He, he didn't want to lose it. And the fact that he apparently chooses money over Jesus shows that he thinks money can give him the good life. Now, he knows that's not true because that's why he came to Jesus in the first place. He knows that something is missing. And, and yet the life that money will, the, the lie that money will bring happiness, that money will bring fullness, that, that money will bring richness to life clings to him so much that even though he knows it's a lie, he can't give it up. Now, I've heard some people argue that, that we don't know that this young man didn't give up his money. I mean, we only know that he was sad. Maybe he was sad because he was going to sell it. Well, maybe. But the truth is that we also know that he walked away. That's what we're told. He walked away from Jesus. Jesus says, sell and then follow me. But he 
seemingly walked in the opposite direction. And I think the implication at least is clear. You cannot serve God and money. This rich young man chose money instead. Do you believe the same lies? Do you think that money and material possessions can make you happy, can give you the good life? Now, money is not a bad thing. Don't misunderstand. Uh, you may have heard the saying that money is the root of all evil. That saying is not in the Bible. What the Bible says is the love of money is a root of all kinds of evil, which is quite a bit different. Uh, money's not evil. The Bible says the love of money, right? The love of money is one of the roots, a root of all different kinds of evil in someone's life. And yet the lie that, that money can bring the good life that, that, that uh, leads you to treat money as your God, to make riches into an idol, to worship and serve created things, to ascribe to something in the world what only belongs to the God of heaven and earth. He alone is all satisfying. He alone can bring fullness to life. So do you recognize the lack, the empty space? What do you do with that? Do you try to fill it with morality or with religion or with spectacular experience or with money? When you feel a sense of emptiness, what do you run to in order to fill it up? This young man came to Jesus with a question. And we've looked at the interaction from the young man's side, and now I want to look at it from Jesus' side. We've looked at recognizing the lack, filling the space. Now we're going to look at emptying self. Again, this man comes to Jesus with a question. Teacher, what good deed must I do to have eternal life? And Jesus immediately begins to confront some assumptions. Look at the next verse. Jesus says to him, why do you ask me about what is good? There is only one who is good. This man thinks that his morality can get him somewhere. He thinks, for instance, that he's kept all the commandments. He thinks he can do whatever the good deed, deed is that needs to be done. But Jesus says to him, there's only one who is good. Jesus is saying to this young man, you know, you're not as good as you think you are. Think about what Jesus said throughout Matthew so far. I mean, Jesus taught in the Sermon on the Mount that it's not just our outward behavior that mattered, but the inner activity of our hearts. Jesus says it's, it's not just the outward behavior, but also our motive for that outward behavior. Whether we seek to please God or whether we seek to please people. Jesus taught that we cannot love both God and money. Jesus taught later that no, uh, no one, uh, nothing that goes into a man will defile him, but what comes out, because it's from within, out of the heart, that comes evil thoughts, murder, adultery, sexual morality, theft, witness, false witness, and slander. And so right away, this man comes wanting to do some great thing for God, and Jesus tells him, you're actually not as good as you think you are. The man persists, right? He wants to know what he lacks. And I think we make a common mistake at this point. We think that Jesus' response is to tell the man what he lacks. But I, I think that's not quite right. When Jesus says, if you want to be perfect, go sell all that you have, he's not telling the man what he lacks. He's trying to show him what he lacks. See, Jesus says, verse 21, if you would be perfect, go sell what you possess and give to the poor and you will have treasure in heaven and then come and follow me. 
Jesus gives him some very specific, somewhat spectacular and out of the ordinary, unexpected things to do. But the man can't do it. Why not? Well, Jesus is showing him that he loves the world too much and he loves God too little. What, what do I still lack? The man says, well, Jesus is showing him you lack love for God. You're not putting him first. Now, as kind of an aside, as Christians, of course, we want people to come to know Jesus. And we often think the best way to do that is to tell them about Jesus. And that's pretty logical, yes. Um, because of that, though, we're often anxious to get to the gospel with people. We know that no one can believe unless they hear and no one can hear unless someone tells them. That's from Romans 10. And so we're quick to get to the gospel. Jesus' method of evangelism is pretty odd to us. We always want to answer like Peter does in Acts chapter 16. You know, Peter, in Acts 16, somebody asks him, what must I do to be saved? And Peter says, believe on the Lord Jesus Christ and you will be saved, you and your household. Well, this rich man comes to Jesus and he asks almost the same question, what must I do to inherit eternal life? And we want to say, believe in Jesus and you will have eternal life which is the correct answer. But that's not what Jesus says. Why not? Well, because Jesus is attentive to people's hearts. He, he pays attention to where people are. Um, there, there's a, an evangelistic principle that you may have heard of. Um, you see it throughout the Gospels. Jesus is always doing this. Um, law to the proud, grace to the humble. Have you ever heard that? Law to the proud, grace to the humble. This man comes to Jesus thinking that he can do whatever it takes to earn eternal life, Jesus doesn't respond, believe and be saved. He doesn't respond, I'm going to die on the cross for the sins of sinners. Jesus responds, you're not as good as you think you are. Keep the commandments. Love me more than you love money. Jesus is patient with this man. We need to be as patient with people as Jesus is as we talk to them. We need to be willing to, to talk about the law with people who think they have it all together when necessary. We need to be willing to respect people enough to let them walk away, which of course is exactly what this man does. And Jesus responds after he walks away in verse 23. says, Truly I say to you, only with difficulty will a rich person enter the kingdom of heaven. Again, I tell you, it is easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle than for a rich person to enter the kingdom of God. I talked about this a moment ago, but we need to, again, ask the question, why? Why is it so hard? Why is it so hard for the wealthy to enter the kingdom? And even as I, as I ask that question, as we think about this, one of the things we need to realize in this room, of course, is all of us fall into that category of wealthy, um, certainly on a world scale when you compare ourselves to the rest of the world. Um, we, we're wealthy. Right? Most of us drove here this morning. Uh, maybe we looked up the times on our computer to remember, refresh our memories. Right? We're, we're, we have money. We're, we count as the wealthy here. Jesus says it's hard for a rich man to enter the kingdom. Okay, take this personally. Right? Why? Why is it so hard for the wealthy to enter the kingdom? Jesus' little parable about the camel going through the eye of the needle, um, it, it's meant to demonstrate the implausibility of a rich person entering the kingdom, the, that it's absurdly difficult right, for a rich person to enter the kingdom of God. Why? Well, there, there are at least three reasons, actually. We mentioned two before. The first, 
that we mentioned is what, when we have many nice things, it's easy to love those things. And so love for things crowds out love for God in our hearts. Jesus talked about this in Matthew 13 as the seed that fell among thorns and is choked out by them. Jesus says the cares of the world and the deceitfulness of riches choke out the word of God in our hearts. You cannot serve God in money, right? The second reason is that, that riches make us self-sufficient. They, they tend to lead us to self-reliance. I have what I need. I have what it takes. But then there's another reason, a third reason, and that is that riches cause us to focus on the present life. I mean, if I have much in this life, I tend to think that this is all there is. This is all I need. And I'm focused on what I have, keeping what I have, maybe getting more of what I have, rather than looking at the big picture. Riches are not evil, again, but this man's riches, at least, were keeping him from the kingdom. His love for them, his self-sufficiency, and even his self-righteousness because of them. His focus on them and on this life, rather than on the big picture. These things were keeping him from following Jesus. The very things that he thought enabled him to fill the emptiness in his life, his morality, his riches, these are the very things that he trusted in to give him the good life. They're the very things that were keeping him from the good life. The very things that, that I rely on to fill the void in my life are the very things that keep me from being filled because they keep me from recognizing my total emptiness and turning to Jesus to be filled by him. This man trusts in his riches and trusts in his goodness. And, and Jesus says, you're not as good as you think you are. Realize the riches, uh, that, that you love riches more than you love God. You really are empty. And you need to come to me and be filled, Jesus says. Jesus calls the rich man to get rid of his self-sufficiency, to empty himself, and then to follow Jesus. As it turns out, the very thing that, that we think makes us able to fill our emptiness are the very things that we must empty ourselves of if we are to be filled by Jesus. The very things that we think give us life are idols, the things we love, the things that bring us joy very often are the very things that stop us from finding true life in the true God. The very things we trust in to give us life are the very things we must empty ourselves of to find life in Jesus. Anything that stands in your way of following Jesus, anything that makes you think that you are self-sufficient, anything that makes you believe the lie that, that you can be satisfied with the stuff of this world, anything that focuses your eyes and heart and mind on the present life to the exclusion of the fuller life now and to come, Jesus says, empty yourself of those things so I might fill you with a true fullness. Now, of course, Jesus never asks us to do something that, that he hasn't done first. It's really true, actually. Though he was God from eternity, Jesus took on the form of a servant. He came into the world. Though rich, the Bible tells us, Jesus became poor. Though strong, Jesus came to no weakness. Though glorious, Jesus came to no shame. Though righteous, Jesus came to experience our guilt. Jesus emptied himself, not in the sense that he ceased to be God, right? You can't un-God God, but Jesus took on emptiness. He came to experience the human condition. Though rich, he became poor that we might become rich, Paul says. 
we can be filled because he was empty. We can be called righteous because he became sin for us. We can enjoy fullness of life and communion with the Father because Jesus was forsaken on the cross. His fellowship with the Father was broken. Well, the passage goes on, and I, and I need to hit on it briefly, receiving the reward. Peter is thinking through some of these things that Jesus is saying, and uh, Peter says in verse 27, he has this idea, you can see the light bulb go off above Peter's head. He says, wait a minute. See, we have left everything and followed you, Jesus. What then will we have? See, Peter's thinking, you know, go, go sell all that you have. You will have treasure in heaven and then come follow me. And Jesus thinks, Peter thinks, well, okay, um, I've given up everything. I'm following you. What, what am I going to get for it? Again, Jesus' response isn't what we would expect. We would expect Jesus to maybe go back and explain to Peter this, you know, but he doesn't. Jesus just promises Peter and all who would follow him a reward. Jesus really is unashamed throughout the Gospels about heavenly treasure and heavenly rewards. Now, we shouldn't think that we're earning some heavenly reward by giving everything away, as if, oh, I, now I get it, okay? I can't buy heaven with money. I can't buy the kingdom with riches, but maybe I can buy the kingdom with poverty. So I'll just give everything up, and then it'll be mine. Well, no, that's still the same attitude, isn't it? That's still the same attitude as the rich young man. What good thing must I do? And yet God does reward his children as they follow him. Uh, you, you maybe have heard the saying by the famous quote by Jim Elliott. He says, he is no fool who gives what he cannot keep to gain what he cannot lose. Right? Th this is Jesus' encouragement to all of us in this room. As we give up whatever we must give up to follow him, as we give up money, if we need to give up money, as we give up our pride, as we give up our moral superiority, as we give up the love of nice things, as we give up chasing after some new experience day after day, Jesus says, look, I'm going to give you a hundredfold and eternal life, life to its fullest. Jesus wants to bless his people. The more we pursue him, the greater blessing we will know. Not necessarily, right, material, monetary, physical things, but nearness to God and joy in Jesus and hope because of God's promises and fearlessness in the face of trouble and dwelling with God forever in the new creation. God will give you a hundredfold. He will give you fullness of life here and forever as we look to Jesus and follow him. Let's pray. Lord Jesus, we, we do long to follow you, and we, we know that there are so many things in our heart, so many things in our heart that tend to crowd out our love for you. We pray, Jesus, that you would grant us eyes to see those things, to name those things, to repent of those things. Grant us repentance, that we would say, I'm sorry, Jesus, for loving money, for loving riches, for loving pleasure, for loving this world. Help me, Jesus, to love you above everything. Grant us that repentance. Show us Jesus in all his glory, that we would love him and delight in him above all else. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.